1: Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat, and today I'm blessed and honoured to be in dialogue with Dr. Vot van Bekum. He is Emeritus Professor of Middle Eastern Studies at Groningen University in the Netherlands. We'll be discussing his new book. The Religious Poetry of El-Azhar Ben Ya'akov Habavli of Baghdad of the 13th century, published in Lidim by Brill, 2023. Vaut, I'm thrilled to be in conversation with you today.
0: Thank you, Ari, for having me.
1: To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? Were there any formative events in your life that catalyzed the scholar you'd become as an adult?
0: Yes. Uh, My name is Wout van Becken, I am born at the 21st of May 1954 in a small town called Binschoten which is in the province of Groningen. This province is situated in the northeastern part of the Netherlands so it's not far from the German border. And you have the same name, Groningen, for the province and for the capital of the province. So when I finished my gymnasium, which is the classical education with Greek and Latin and many other topics, you can go to study in the city of Groningen, which has an university, and that university also had a so-called institute of Semitic languages and cultures, including Egyptology and archaeology of the ancient Near East. When I say this, it sounds already to me as a very long time ago, but at that institute where I started in 1972, you would get languages like classical Hebrew which is biblical Hebrew, classical Arabic including Quranic Arabic and then also Aramaic like biblical Aramaic uh, reading Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah and some Syriac. Syriac is mostly New Testament, it's still the church language of the Syriac church And even a little bit of cuneiform language, which was Akkadian, so-called Babylonian. So this was a lot of languages, but I liked languages. I liked texts. I still liked them mostly, but we had to confine. So I confined into languages like Hebrew in different stages, the rabbinic, medieval, also modern. And Arabic was mostly medieval and some modern literary Arabic. So that's the picture of being at the Institute of Semitic Languages. And this is how it started off. Student and then uh, time in Jerusalem, 1977, 1979. And then becoming student assistant. And that's how you get into academics.
1: What inspired you? to engage with this book project. What message does your book convey to readers?
0: This book, uh, uh, which now came out, a Religious Poetry of Elazar Habavli, is almost also to be considered as a spin-off of an earlier book with an edition from the same poet, the same composer of all his so-called secular poems. So you could, Actually, consider both books as a twin. We can talk later about what is secular and what is religious. How would you like to make a distinction? But you're talking about one and the same personality. And this all started with earlier literature from a person called Jacob Mann. And this Jacob Mann already had included in his books number of poems by this Elazar and another person called Chaim Brody who is a chief editor who is a main editor also of many other uh, collections of poems who also had um, found a manuscript in New York in the Adler collection of the Jewish Theological Seminary and that was like one piece of secular compositions of this poet and he writes in his book that he is very frustrated by the fact there is actually another compliment in Leningrad and he can't reach it he can't uh, get it in order to read it but he was aware of it through a um, Russian scholar Russian Jewish scholar Harkavi who knew about the manuscript, and there were a lot of compositions also in that one, and he could not edit it together with the American manuscript. So that triggered me in a period when the microfilms of these manuscripts from Leningrad, later St. Petersburg, came to Jerusalem, and there I could consult the manuscript. So that's how it actually evolved into that first book, are based on one manuscript, and then all the, well, if you would say it rudely, all the leftovers, and mostly religious, or, or, or at least close to something that you would call religious poetry, came much later. This is more or less the survey that I can give you.
1: What are the primary themes in your book? Does your book Advance any particular arguments regarding the poet?
0: The, yes, the main themes are um, uh, certainly uh, have to do with um, the relationship between uh, man and God in a specific way. It's almost like a an, an search of God and it's also very much um also concentrating on the Godhead, so to speak. So it's not just let's say completely liturgical according to a calendar of festivals and special Shabbatot or special Sabbath. It is it is more than that. He has a certain uh he has a certain feeling for Uh, uh, Yeah, you could call it mystical or you could call it pietistic, the relationship between man and God. And he seems to have reasons to do that for that matter. This is certainly one of his main themes. And then you come to um, sub-themes like uh, uh, the situation of people who want to attain more knowledge about God, who want to attain more proximity Uh, with God. These are the elements which are being wrapped up in Jewish terminology, uh, uh, which seems to be around already a longer time in his environment in Baghdad, or in um, urban Judaism, in urban Jewish communities like Baghdad, Cairo, and Damascus. So that's the framework you could Mention. And then you have all kinds of um, of uh, other elements which come to it, which you could call conventional, because poetry has a very long history in the Hebrew tradition, in Jewish tradition. And he is, of course, not entirely detached from it. So he's not a loner. Uh, he is also connected to his community and to uh, liturgy, for that matter. So... That's also part of, of, his, of his affiliation, so to
1: speak. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today?
0: Uh, there is, of course, an, um, a context to be mentioned. The context is that we are talking about a Jewish community that existed for such a long time in the city of Baghdad or in the vicinity of Baghdad. You only have to think of the Go'onim, who were, of course, mostly situated in cities like Sura and Pumbedita and the Hardeya. It's all in the same region. It's all in the same country, you could say. So there is a long standing tradition of Jewish presence and Jewish culture going on in Iraq. And this is, of course, uh, important to mention. I would say the overall message is understanding in modern times for the relationship between Jews and Muslims. And you can say, okay, Judaism is a minority culture and Islam is the majority culture, but there there is a lot of um, cooperation, there is a lot of, uh, uh, I would say, symbiosis between the two, historical, cultural, and then at a certain moment, also religious and uh, juridical, you can say halachic as well. So that's for me a very interesting point to make that people can read this book. You are being taken to Baghdad 13th century, and you learn from it how these groups and how these people live together. It's a real coexistence. an outcome in poetry, language, and um, yeah, uh, understanding the world at that specific moment. That is what I would like to convey to the readers.
1: What does your book teach us about medieval Hebrew poetry and hymnology?
0: Uh, Such a book like this one is, of course, in that sense, a little bit episodic, it's a little bit offside, and I can explain you why because Baghdad was a very important city until the fatal year of 1258 In 1258, and apparently not everybody was very much prepared to that, the Mongols reached Baghdad. And the Mongols destroyed the city uh, 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 completely. Nothing was left of this long Abbasid rule of Baghdad and the enormous um, central position the city had in that uh, part of the world. And the Mongols really annihilated everything and everybody. So many people lost their lives. So you ask me this question, and then I have to look through this year and through this fatal date in order to see what happened there before. So it's much harder to reconstruct, and it's much more difficult to understand what was going on in that city before 1258. And Baghdad never recovered from that Enormous blow uh, the city got in 1258. Uh, Baghdad is, in, as a matter of fact, the city of 1,000 uh, and one nights. It's the real, uh, uh, even in those days, people could look back at the history of caliphs who had an enormous uh, richness and luxury, and they attracted many scholars and poets to the city. And this was already in Elazar's azhars days, three, four, five hundred years ago. But that, um, for us, the researchers, it's difficult to look back and to see in what kind of world Elazar was really living. So that's part of the answer.
1: What kind of city was Baghdad in the 13th century? Where and when was Rabbi Elazar born? Can you describe the geography of the milieu that he was born into?
0: We do not know exactly when he was born. It seems to be around um, um, something like 1191, 1192. It's not very sure. Um, The milieu must have been a Jewish community With certainly a lot of self-consciousness, also some self-pride, absolutely. It was absolutely present. Um, I think they were very well aware of all kinds of information with regard to uh, Talmud, Midrash, Halakha, Bible, of course. Um, There is no lack of, of knowledge in that enormous city. And there is a message from a major Spanish poet, a major Andalusian composer, Yuda al Kharizi, who um, composed a famous book called Tachdemoni. And at a certain moment, he also um, reaches Alexandria and there he says, I have met a young guy called Elazar Hamevin. He uses a Hebrew word, hamevin, and he talks about his poetry. He said, well, it's okay, but he can do better. But, you know, he says some of his poetry is fine, but this is typical Yehuda al-Kharizi from Andalusia criticizing his colleagues in the East. He does it all the time in his book, Daghtamani. But we are very happy with this information because... Apparently, and at a young age, this could have happened around 1215, was on his way to Alexandria. And now some hypothesis comes in and you said, why would he be in Alexandria? And then reading the, his poetry and understanding that he is going in the direction of pietism and spiritualism, um, it can occur your mind that he was on his way to Cairo, to Fustat, in order to meet nobody less than Abraham, the son of my, Moses Maimonides. So Abraham Maimonides was a person who was also very pietistic and, and, and very ritual in his uh, action and in his uh, religion. And that is what you could call Sufism. Sufi practice so I like to believe that um, his travel to Alexandria at a younger age was um, on his way to Cairo in order to meet Abraham Maimonides and I have a little bit of proof for it because he wrote a few praise songs for Abraham Maimonides and makes him actually his personal hero so there you have some information about the start of his life and he certainly returned to Baghdad where he got a living out of writing many praise poems and these praise poems are for functionaries or rather dignitaries in the Jewish community. Those people always have double names. They have an Arabic honorific name like the hope of uh, the state or the the son of the state, or something like that, and a an Hebrew name. So he was actually maybe also earning his money by writing many praise poems for dignitaries in the city. And this is also helpful in understanding who are all these people over there? What are their functions? What are their professions? You get some information out of it, although that can be found also in uh, other documentation which has been um, described by somebody like Shlomo Dov Goitain, the great Goitein who wrote his book A Mediterranean Society, because many letters also reached Cairo, Fustad, and were stored over there in the, in the famous Geniza. So there you have um, an addition I would see my book and call my book also as some kind of an addition, an addendum to everything that has been said about the Baghdad Jewish community in the first half of the 13th century. But on the other hand, he was a scholar, because also there is a treatise on Hebrew poetry and poetics, very specific poetic means he is describing, like, how are you going to make the right meter for a poem? What are the best uh, qualities of poetry and what are possibly the bad qualities of poetry? Although, unfortunately, that chapter has been lost. So it's a it's a fragment treatise. But it shows you that he was an absolute scholar in Hebrew language and linguistics. And he, know, and he knew everything about Hebrew poetry and poetics. But if I say poetics, you also have to include everything what comes from the Arabs. So this is more or less my description or yeah, uh, uh, my impression of the man.
1: What were the characteristics of the Jewish community in Baghdad at the time when Rabbi Elazar was alive?
0: I would say that this was a community in which rank and position played a major role. I cannot otherwise describe it because it must have been a multi-layered community in which elite and elitistic behavior was there and and scholars, rabbis, um, um, culturally developed people certainly belonged to an upper layer. And as usual, you do not get that much information about the lower layers, but it was an, an, a multi-layered community. And I would believe that this was more or less the same as with the larger community of the Baghdadis and the, uh, the Muslims, the Arabs, and the, the Sunnites, the Shiites, the Persians who were in the city. And it must have been parallel, more or less. But this is a a community of ranks, positions, and status. I would believe so. How does
1: Rabbi Elazar's poetry reflect trends in Hebrew language, linguistics, and grammar in the Arabic-speaking world of the Middle Ages? Can you comment on this in regard to rhyme and meter in his poems?
0: Yes. You can say that Elazar is mostly uh, very much um, conventional in his application of rhyme schemes, of uh, metrical schemes. So in that sense, uh, you would say wow. that he is very much in the tradition of Hebrew poetry throughout the Middle Ages. It, it sounds and it looks like what has been written and composed by many others. On the other hand, um, it has to do with the genres he selects. And there is one genre, which is called the girdle composition, the girdle rhyme, and in Arabic is actually a girdle, a belt, so to speak, which has to do with different verses in which you have different rhymes, and they gird around the strophe, so to speak. It's a little bit technical, that these um, so-called muvashaha hymns were very popular in the streets, so they were actually always sung. They were melodious, so I think in that genre, he was um, trying also to express his Hebrew language and grammar in a rather, um, yeah, in a rather um, visible way, in a rather obvious way. So he's not. It's not a person who is mystifying with his words. He wants to be clear. And actually, to in, to some extent, I would call it a simple idiom. It's not very hard to understand him. It's not the language which is the puzzle. It's the message which is the puzzle. And that's, that's what is so intriguing about his poetry. Because the Hebrew, and I tried, of course, also to uh, to to transport that into English, into proper English, is that, that that is not the linguist problem, but it's the message problem. So he was very well versed in grammar. He knew everything about classical and biblical Hebrew. You do hardly see any features from rabbinic literature or midrashic literature. So he's in that sense, very close to Bible. And this makes sense that um, composers, Hebrew composers, want to be as close as possible to Bible. This does not um, avoid the fact that he has some kind of a personal lexicon. So he uses words from classical Hebrew, but gives it a different meaning I mean, I give you an example. You have the example of Sha'ol. Sha'ol means actually netherworld or underworld or, or something like that. For him, it is simply a word for world. The same happens also with Devaill. So you do have these, you, you have some kind of a personal lexicon. Uh, if you want to know it, then you can use it all the time but that's only a very small part of his of his language and grammar in poetry. But he is certainly not a person who imitates the early hymnists, which have, of course, um, made an enormous contribution to synagogue liturgy, uh, the Paitanim they are called, and I'm talking about Palestinian Paitanim like Yanai and Kalir but also a person from Iraq like Saadia Gaon. Saadia Gaon is, of course, a very interesting man from the ninth century who has written poetry that you hardly can use it in liturgy because language is awfully difficult. And el is not in that mood, so to speak. I would say that even his secular compositions are more um, complicated than his religious poems which are being edited in the, in this book.
1: You write as follows on page 12 about the muwashaha as a liturgical song or religious hymn is also determined by the effects of poetic meters. It is expected to be maintained throughout the composition. Although metrical shifts per strophe often occur. Fo- following his Andalusian Predecessors, El-Azar, made creative use of the liberties of the genre in choosing variations of standard meters, and in many cases, a metrical variant was applied distinct from the classical examples. The majority of El-Azar's Mawashahat have been modified meters, have, have modified meters and combinations of verse feet that are similar but not equal to classical Arabic and Hebrew meters. The use of alternating meters gives the impression that El Azar was not as limited by strict metrical criteria as by the organizing principles of strophic division and rhyme. Can you say more about the above? What is a Mawashaha? What is distinct about El Azar's Mawashahat?
0: Right. Uh, I mentioned um, the name before. So this is the so-called Girl, the Rhyme composition. But what you are reading is, of course, very intriguing because it shows you that there are rules for Hebrew poetry, mostly deriving from Arabic poetics to something like nitro, metrical schemes. Well, I can tell you, actually, metrical schemes are Doing very well in Arabic poetry, but when already in the 10th century they were transferred to Hebrew language and poetry, you had a few difficulties. For instance, with regard to the Shva. Sometimes the Shva can be seen as a vowel, and sometimes you have to completely ignore it. And you know this also from Hebrew grammar, but it should be very clear also in poetry. In order to follow classical metrical schemes, classical meters, which were defined uh, by the Arabs. If you uh, are reading about the modification of these meters, even per strove, so this means that not the entire composition is one and the same meter, then you have already taken a kind of liberty within such a muvashah, in which you have different verses, and these are, let's say, inner divisions in which you can modify these meters. So they do not follow a classical pattern, but there are, yeah, deviations, so to speak. Well, this is a very difficult part of the Mubashagha, That Why and how could you simply change meter from time to time? And also, this also has to do with, with uh, rhyme schemes. But they took that liberty because um, this was the fun of writing a so-called Girdle composition, a, a mwashiach. And as I said before, only um, marginally, uh, this is a type of um, composition which must have been very popular in the streets. People were singing it. Because sometimes I came across a reference to a melody. And sometimes you can find it, and that's only rare. But but sometimes it was even an Arabic melody, which was sung in Baghdad. And that specific Hebrew muashachah was sung in the Jewish community or in his personal circle, or perhaps even in the synagogue. I am not sure about that, if these... Those melodies were really being used in synagogues. I believe so because there are um, uh, indications to it. But there is also criticism of this kind of composition. Even Maimonides criticized the use of these kind of street melodies or uh, uh, these kind of compositions. And he would not um, like the fact that. Hebrew language as a holy language was used for such a kind of secular composition. So this is difficult with regard to this type of poetry. Um, Quite a few people have written about it, but with Elazar, I came across, again, uh, you know, some some, some structures and some, um, some changes which I did not see before. So he was also quite easygoing in that, and he simply must have liked it a lot. Unfortunately, I must say, perhaps the larger part of all his muvashahat were lost, perhaps maybe even deliberately torn out of the manuscripts, censored perhaps. This is the most difficult part of it, how this type of censorship could have taken place later perhaps, copyists who omitted these compositions. And it may have to do with the structure. It also may have to do with the message. When it becomes too mystical, too Sufi-like, something like that, maybe not everybody did like it. So you see, there is still a lot to 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 search for. But this is more or less my answer to uh, with this very specific type of composition. You write the
1: following on pages 26 and 27, where you talk about the collections where, where El Azar's manuscripts are found. You write as follows The majority of El Azar's liturgical or devotional oeuvre has survived in manuscripts of the Geniza and Firkovitz collections and was unknown until their discovery and disclosure in the 20th century. A smaller part of his piutim team can be found in the Mahzorim of the East. In contrast to El secular poetry, his pew team are in different texts of diverse origins and natures. The Firkovitz collection seems to yield a number of original piutim, team culminating in the unique finding of 10 transcribed poems by Ephraim Denard that also originated from a hitherto unidentified Firkovitz manuscript. Otherwise, El Azar's religious verse is primarily found in fragments of paper and parchment that consist of one or more leaves and do not occur in any original bound state. You then, if if you don't mind me skipping ahead, you, you then point out that large parts of El Azar's Religious poetry are presently found in the Geniza collections of Cambridge University Library, including the Moseri Collection, uh, the Bodleian Libraries of Oxford, the British Library, formerly the Library of the British Museum, Hebrew Union College, Jewish Theological Seminary of America, and Russian National Library of St. Petersburg. Single pew team appear in manuscripts of the Biblioteca Apostolica Vaticana, Biblioteca Ambrosiana di Milano, and Biblioteca Medicea Lorenziana di Firenze. Can you elaborate on the above? Can you comment on the different collections and libraries where Elazar's poetry and manuscripts are found?
0: Yes. Um, First of all, (laughs) if you read it like this, it is really, uh, it looks like um, a an enormous chaos of manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts, which you have to assemble and to bring together in order to get out an edition like this. And you're right in that because um, uh, I hope readers will understand what's going on here. The easy part is, of course, that you would find parts and pieces of his entire collection of poetry in standard libraries like Cambridge, Oxford, uh, and, and um, also in St. Petersburg and New York. And this is, of course, uh, uh, those collections are very well cataloged. Nowadays, we are in a very fortunate position that many of these fragments are being photographed. They're being digitalized in the so-called Friedberg and Nisa project. And a wonderful system of the of recent years in which you can bring all these fragments together through the computer that's an enormous uh, game of course but um the first part you were reading out is about um yeah let's say the themahzorin the 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 prayer books for the festivals or even series the the prayer books yeah so a part of it was never transmitted through manuscripts but those manuscripts are gone but somehow these poems have found their way into standard machzorim. These can be codices, a codex or printed stuff. This can be from the days that printing books were appearing that an Elazar poem could appear there as well. So I could not only rely on fragments of manuscripts in famous libraries, but they also had to go to all these books of whatever written or printed and what is left of it. And then you can see that Elazar has his own diaspora. Those Mahzorim are, of course, according to the Baghdadi rite. It's the Baghdadi ritual. But where did Baghdadi Jews go? Also specifically after the Mongol invasion and when Baghdad was not so interesting anymore, economically, politically, culturally, those people went to the East. They went to India. And they ended up in Bombay or in Calcutta. Or they even went to China. And uh, so you needed, interestingly enough, to consult mahzurin from Indian press and Chinese press, and then finding one or two or more of Elazar's hymns. Well, that's of course very curious, and that's it's, it's very intriguing. And when you were saying something about the Firkovich collection, yeah, that's this very remarkable person, Abraham Firkovich, from the nineteenth century, who was sent, and also he himself initiated so-called expeditions to the Middle East in order to buy manuscripts from. Um, courthouses and synagogues of specifically the Karaites. He himself was a so-called Karaite, That is the literalists in Judaism, so to speak. Only Bible people. They do not recognize the authority of the Talmud and the authority of rabbis. That's why they are called Karaites. So he was interested in all these collections, and in these collections many parts and pieces were hidden. Uh, which had to do with poetry, also Andalusia, but also the East. And what also happened is that some of those manuscripts have never been found, but this person, Ephraim Deinart, who lived from 1846 to 1930, he transcribed poems of many people in his own manuscripts. They are now in Warsaw in Poland. And um, yeah, those poems are not to be found in any manuscript. So it's an enormous search to um, get this all together. This is the situation in which you can see that the Geniza is, of course, very important in order to reconstruct many uh, collections of uh, poetry by many unknown hymnists and unknown poets. But you need to go sometimes a little bit further. And then, thanks to a, a person who loved books and manuscripts like Ephraim Deinard you even find other poems in his own writing. And we do not have the original source. Uh, this is a small um, description of um, the labyrinths you are entering when you want to uh, reconstruct and to rebuild the poetry uh, collection of one poet.
1: What do Rabbi Elazar's poems say about time? Can you elaborate on how time is presented in his poetry?
0: Yes. First of all, um, uh, uh, in his secular, in his secular poetry, he also wrote a lot of lamentations, dirges, for people who uh, died. And then he is always talking about time Time is the same as fate. This is something that he borrowed from the Arabs. The element of time is always a very strongly connected to human fate. People are sons and daughters of time. So time is actually the main uh or the main instrument in which you are being born, educated, you can. You can attain some profession or some living, but at a certain moment you also will die. And time is for Elazar um, almost something which has to do with the yeah with mysticism and with the divine, because there is no human who escapes the 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 verdict of time, so to speak. So that's what he is saying about time. Uh, most uh, in, in, in in these poems as well so you cannot you cannot escape your fate you cannot escape your uh, destiny so to speak although I would not say that time um, is the same as predestination but it is certainly destination and he uses it in many um, uh, in a variety of um, uh, for lyrical forms, it's, it's in lyrics in a way, in order to make clear to people that an attachment to the divine, to God, is also necessary in order to um, to um, continue. And this continuation of human life is not is not um, uh, attached to the body, but it's attached to the soul and everybody has a soul and as you know soul is of course a philosophical term and that's how the soul poetry is also very strongly represented in his uh, in his collection so that's that's his way it's it's a philosophical concept for him in a way and at the same time It's an existential concept.
1: On page 46, you you write the following. The characterization of a man or woman's life cycle into 10-year stages in both Hebrew and Arabic literature and poetry provides a stimulus for El azhar to apply the same decennial format in his composition without overemphasizing the profanity of this motif. The first verse also seems to tap into this tendency by presenting men as creations of God who in many ways do not realize their vain and temporal circumstances. The decennial division of human existence in El azhars version is not just entertaining, but intentionally serves a moralistic didactic purpose in both the Hebrew and Arabic traditions. The message of the, inevi- of the inevitability of man's aging and decay is equally apparent. It may have taken El azhar little effort to integrate this motif into his composition for any liturgical purpose. Can you elaborate on this passage for
0: us? Yes, sure. Well, in the first place, um, you have already used the term decennial division. It's a little bit a strange term, but it means that in poetry, um, a human life is being described per 10 years And if you allow me, I would like to give you the example of uh, Elazar from his own poetry.
1: Sure, please.
0: So uh, also, in order to make this passage clear, he writes the following poem. People satisfied with the image of their creator have gone into a land they do not know, a string of eloquence and pearls of speech filled their mouths. Their words have been impetuous. Men who gently ventured to set foot on earth, they will be brought down to scabs. Those who sat on royal thrones, they bowed to the ground and were subdued. And now he starts to make the division. The 10-year-old so much involved in worthless things is misled by the pitfalls of youth. Or the 20-year-old caught in the ropes of love is hit by the force of love. The 30-year-old filled with compassion for his children, delighted, and amused by them the 40 year old advanced in years the early grayness of his side locks breaks forth. the 50 year old his eyes no longer shine his ears are very bothered by deafness reaching the age of 60 your achievements have been eradicated from your heart. I say to the 70-year-old, pack your belongings for exile. The chariots of death are approaching. 80-year-old, you have the strength, but you are quiet. Your life has already passed. Mourn the 90-year-old because the grinder sees and the keepers of his lofty house tremble. Those more than 90 are considered dead. They do not hear and do not know. These are the outer fringes of human ways when days are fulfilled and life on earth satisfied. There are those who die in the womb and children who lose their lives before they are born. And while still in their prime, they were snatched away. Before they unsheathed, they are swallowed up. So wake up, you simpletons, from your foolish sleep. Listen to wise counsel and do not ignore it. The white hairs on your head are calling. Get up and set out for the netherworld. You do not listen. Hurry up, rise from the miry pit before you will be too late and drown too." Well, this is in Azar's poems on the decennial, division of human existence. And as you can see, this is a motive. This is how you can um, uh, use it in many different ways in poetry. But he uses it very clearly for moralistic purposes and you should be aware of your vanity. So this motive is, I think, it's it's in world literature. In many ways, you can find it even in Shakespeare, Shakespeare drama plays. That's also very interesting to uh, notice. Um, so this is uh, also being uh, derived from uh, the Mishnah. you find it in Perikeyavot, the, the sayings of the fathers. At five years of age, the study of scripture. At 10, the study of Mishnah. At 13, subject to the commandments, like the Bar Mitzvah, of course. At 15, the study of Talmud. At 18, the bridal canopy. At 20, for pursuit of livelihood. At 30, the peak of years. At 40, wisdom. At 50, able to give counsel. At 60, old age. At 70, fullness of years. At 80, the age of strength. Gevorot. At ninety, a bent body. At one hundred, as good as dead, and come and gone completely out of the world. That's in the Mishnah. So now you can ponder um, thoughts—the thought about from whom he is borrowing. But I think it's a beautiful make from uh, Arabic presentations of this ages, or these ages of men, and Hebrew presentations. So he's standing here in a motif tradition, and he uses it for his own purposes, of course. But um, I would say I'm very happy to have this poet, or Piyut, also in this collection, because it shows his, um, his uh, part of being part of of literary culture. I hope I have explained it in this way.
1: Thank you. That was... Beautiful. I really appreciate it. What does your book teach us about Jewish Sufi relations in the Middle Ages?
0: As you have noticed, I was a little bit, and I am a little bit reluctant mm-hmm. in using the word Sufi bluntly for Hebrew poetry of Elazar. But in mm-hmm. a way, I have to. Um, I have to uh, uh, concede to the fact that this is very close to Sufism. Sufism is, of course, Islamic. Islam, Sufi Islam, is not a sect. It's not a separate movement or something like that. It is part of uh, Islamic devotional life. I would call it devotional. By the way, I can actually reveal a secret to you. I was in the first... um, Part of making this book, actually uh, tempted to call the book the devotional poetry of Elazar Abashi, yeah. but I thought that's too much stress on this specific effect in the specific references to what you could call Sufi um, belief and Sufi practice. So that's why I chose for religious poetry as a more general term. But it's very interesting to see that. This is more or less what he is um, using in his poetry, and I believe he derives this from uh, treatises in uh, that part of the world during the first half of the 13th century, specifically those from Abraham Maimonides. Because Abraham Maimonides has written a book which is called The Book of of Worship, you could call it, Kitab al-Ibeda Sefer Ha'afoda, And this is all about religious practices, like um, vigil in the night, um, bowing down during prayer, uh, which is at the same time Islamic and also has some Sufi element in it. And he defends it by saying, Muslim Sufis have a practice which they have actively borrowed from the ancient Israelites. So it's our practice. It's our custom. The Sufis do it and we Jews can do it at the same, in the same way in the cities of Baghdad and Cairo. This is how Sufism comes in, so to speak. And I think many words, many verses are in that sense, both Sufi and pietistic, and that's why you can say it. I hope that that is clear now.
1: What do Elazar's poems say about listening as a practice and as a phenomenon? Can you elaborate?
0: Um, I think that most of his poems were um, certainly being um, written for for an audience. Uh, That has to do with a certain rhythm it has to do with a certain uh, speed you can also use. So if you read it in his Hebrew, it's in a way it's catchy. You could call it catchy. Uh, People would certainly remember lines from his uh, poetry, from his compositions. The only question which remains is which poetry was really used in synagogue because the Baghdadi synagogues already had a very rich liturgy with many, many poems, which were already revered by tradition. So I'm wondering to what extent Elazar could add to a current liturgical practice in the synagogues he was attending or visiting. So I have the tendency to believe that some of his poems were maybe used in in, in private circles in so-called Jewish Judeo-Sufi circles could very well have been the case. Um, this is difficult to answer and there is no conclusive answer but it's more or less para-liturgical and then people would listen. Maybe he would also recite them himself. He would um, sing it himself, who knows? But others would have sung it too. So this is my maybe too um idealistic picture of the usage of his poetry. Uh, the other element is that you cannot exclude the fact that maybe part of his poetry was written and never been read aloud. If that had you have you need a chance to do that at a certain point, but there is a the reason to believe that part of it was certainly around all the time. And there is one poem in the book, which is still an, an, an integral part of many liturgies in Judaism. So it's in Baghdad, it's in uh, Corfu, it's in uh, Yemen, especially Yemenite liturgy has conserved one specific poem of um, Elazar, which is uh, known by many people So it's called, uh, the poem is called Matai Vussar, and that's actually a very short poem. If you would like me to read it, I will read it. Sure, please. And it says, um, when shall the good news come to the people whose eyes are like a beggar? The year of salvation is nigh, and the Redeemer shall come to Zion. Imprisoned, dispersed, slaves to their masters. Together hear the good news. This is the year of the Redeemer. You shall not abandon your people forever in their exile. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Oppress their oppressors and contend with those who contend with them. Pour out your wrath on Esau and Ishmael. Build my temple my holy domicile, and my inner sanctuary, and establish in your kindness Yenon nun and the altar. You are high among the high ones. Gather our scattered people to Zion, and you shall be like the Jew to Israel." And this is being found in a um, festival, Machzor, but also in many other manuscripts and the light. Like. Yeah, this could have been, it. I think it's now being sung mostly for, um, I think, Simcha Torah. So you see it has a clear liturgical function, and it's all around in a different um, liturgies. Uh, I have also found it even in a litur- Jewish liturgy of Corfu, the island near the coast of Greece. So this is a very clear example of liturgical use until this very day.
1: This book is devoted to Rabbi Elazar's religious poetry. You've pre- previously published a volume of and on his secular poetry. How are his secular and his religious poetry interrelated? What are the advantages and disadvantages of the terms secular and religious as applied to his poetry?
0: Yes, that's um, um, uh, uh, actually Elazar is the challenge perhaps also the um, the one who challenges this division we, the researchers, we, the modern scholars, are making between secular and religious. Uh, in earlier years, it was also called profane and religious. Maybe we should be very careful about that. Uh, there, is an, there is an element of fluidity here involved. I mean, if you are Reading secular poems, it does not mean that God or Jewish tradition or Torah or Halacha are completely excluded. If you are reading religious poems, it does not mean that there is no so-called secular motive involved like the one we have seen. The ages of man is not specifically religious as a motive, but it is um, being elaborated as a religious motive with, you know, a posteriori, some backing from Mishnah and even from the Bible, that is also a psalm verse writing about phases of life. But it shows you, we we should be careful about it. And I'm actually someone who would like to, the um, division which was made by the British scholar, Raphael Lowey, in his book on Ibn Gabirol, And he calls religious poetry religious and secular poetry. He calls it social. And I do like it in a way, this element of social poetry which has to do with society, with with the world you're living in and with everything which is happening in that world. And religious, which has a certain destination. So it has to do also with purposes. Most scholars in modern times have actually looked at the division in terms of purpose. And we have explained that Eleazar is difficult when it comes to um, the destination of his uh, poetry, but you have other hymnists, and it's absolutely clear that all, hy- all their hymns and all uh, their work was intended for synagogue practice. And you're talking about religious poetry sec you don't have to discuss it but he actually is someone who you can you can still um you can still discuss this problem that it's, it's not the finished the final answer cannot really be given
1: can you comment on the relationship between jewish poetry and jewish philosophy in the medieval islamic world how are poetry and liturgical hymns pew, team and other forms of poetic writing interconnected with themes and questions in philosophical writing in this context and period? Uh,
0: Philosophy, of course, uh, and everybody knows this, philosophy is something that actually comes from the Greek, but uh, it's known that when the Arabs uh, conquered the Middle East and much more than that, And when Islam was established as a religion, um, Arabs were very much interested in philosophy. So they translated many of the Greek books and many of the Greek philosophers. And as when Jews were part of this greater Islamic world, they would certainly also um, get in touch and get acquainted with so many of the Greek philosophers, through an Arabic lens. It would go via the Arabic line. This is very much visible in the writings of Maimonides specifically in his Guide of the Perplexed. You can find there this sub layer Greek and then the Arabic mediation, so to speak, but there's also a lot of additional Arabic philosophy involved. So Jewish philosophy is some kind of a branch of of a larger philosophical stream or a a, a group of philosophical schools and that that there are main elements to be found in that a main element is the the issue of the soul which we have mentioned before another element um, can be something about um, uh, existence life uh, earth and heaven is involved there, and this is what you can see, and I would call it philosophical ingredients in Jewish poetry. The one who is most outspoken in his uh, use of Jewish philosophy or Judeo-Arabic philosophy, if you like, is Shlomo Ibn Gabirol. That's the Andalusian poet, and uh, Ibn Gabirol's poetry became very famous. was very. He lived a very short time, but his poetry was famous. It's, it's very rich. It's very uh, strict in its prosody. But he is absolutely making the combination between philosophy and Jewish religion, and this was being imitated, as a matter of fact. So I am not sure if you could call Elazar uh, entirely original in using philosophical motives. Uh, Many predecessors did it. The same applies also to us. You have lots of uh, astronomical uh, features in his poetry, but many others did the same. So this is how it is being um, inserted into his poetry. Motives rather than complete theories, but it belongs to a, a mainstream Jewish thinking about specific philosophical concepts.
1: There's a, another quotation I'd be curious to ask you about, which is on page 26. Uh, you write as follows. Um, a large part of El Azar's distinct use of the Hebrew language lies in the idiosyncrasies of his lexicon and syntax, which can also be found in his secular poetry. His preference of Tevel and She'ul as designations for world. Oh is widely represented alongside olam. To establish the meters, el-Azhar had various prepositions at his disposal, sometimes semantically dissimilar from classical Hebrew, among which be'ad, meaning in or for the sake of, and ad, meaning to or until, are the most prominent. Similarly, a selection of adverbs, conjunctions, negations, relatives and their correlatives, interrogatory or exclamatory adverbs, considerably broadened the possibilities to meet the requirements of the metrical patterns. Can you comment and elaborate on the above? And can you say more about grammar and El Azar's poetry?
0: Yes. Um, As you can see, he uh, has a large lexicon at his disposal this means that when he wants to uh, make a verse by the way the word poet is a Greek word which means making so uh, poetry is actually you make verse you make language then he needs to choose words which fit into a metrical scheme um, so uh, it makes his life easier so to speak but you need to stretch semantical range a little bit sometimes. So that's why you would find a different connotations for standard Hebrew words. It's actually squeezing words into a metrical scheme. This is what is actually happening. That's why this selection of all kinds of adverbs and conjunctions and uh, uh, of all kinds and types could make his life easier in order to make a perfect verse line. This is what this for. So it's not entirely according to a standard classical grammar, but it's also not so far away from it. It's, it's, it's not a new invention, so to speak. Other hymnists in earlier ages would really invent complete neologisms, complete new words. He is not so much an inventor, no, he's not so much a, a maker of new words, but he squeezes all kinds of words into the scheme of the first. That's what it's all about. He was very uh, good and very uh, uh, well aware of Hebrew grammar. That's why um, he wrote this specific on um, the use of Hebrew language poetry, That that, that fragment that I have mentioned. So he must have been a um, a well-known scholar for that, but this is how uh, a a a composer, uh, yeah, uh, manages his language and his lexicon and his syntax for making verse. That's what I that's the best what I could say about it. In the time remaining, would you like
1: to comment on any of Elazar's other poems? Would you like to interpret any for us that have not yet? come up in our dialogue
0: well as a um maybe also as some kind of a um, uh, closure sure we could go to um, a poem in which i would hope um, many of the things that we have discussed come together so let me um read that and it's um poem again i don't know for what purpose he wrote it but it is as follows at least it has some liturgical elements sure how shall i direct my prayer to you and declare your mighty acts how and the soul of living shall praise your name i desire and wish to come to an understanding of you I shall command the eye of my intellect to behold your image. When my heart thirsts for the dew of your law, then I shall drink. I shall be the gatekeeper of your courts with thanks and praise. I shall declare your power to the old and young. Around you stand hosts, by ranks and positions, sometimes ascending and sometimes descending, also revolving. When they move around in the vaulted heaven, they reveal at set times, Jupiter, Saturn and Mars, also Mercury and Moon and Venus and Sun. Confessing that you are the creator of all. You have distributed your brilliant knowledge to pure souls. You have made known your secret in heaven and on earth. To your holy people, you made them hear your voice from the heights. You satisfied their desire with goodness in a waste howling wilderness. You appeared in your shining glory to those worthy and unworthy. Men of understanding have much to explore and to examine in themselves. You have the signs like heat and cold from which you cleave their basic shape in gazing lights and firmaments still present because you are calling to each generation from the outset, rolling up the darkness for light and sunlight for the night. And this is this specific poem.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I genuinely appreciate it.
0: You're welcome.
1: As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you comment on your current research now that this book is behind you? What are you working on next?
0: Uh, In the meantime, and this is quite different, I would say, I have um, dared to take the task of translating the entire Guide of the Perplexed by Monmonides into Dutch. Wow. I'm working on it already for three years. Part one is almost finished, and this is, of course, a very draft kind of translation. Part two and three are for the next 15 years, perhaps, eight years, I don't know. I don't want set a time, so I don't want to be a child of time in that respect, but it's an enormous exercise, and I translate Maimonides from the Judeo-Arabic, not from the Hebrew. Um, It's already a success. I'm invited time and again to talk about Maimonides and his thinking. From the language, from from uh, using his original language, but of course you understand that translating is transferring all these ideas and concepts into a strange language. But Dutch is my mother language, is my native language, so it's an enormous puzzle. But some, but sometimes I feel that this is uh, already some kind of a success. In order to clarify. My is reasoning. I would call it much more his reasoning. So this is on the track right now. And if you ask about poetry, there is still in my drawer uh, an an amount of dirges, of, of lamentations in Hebrew from the 15th century, from the period from 1391 a fatal year in which there were many persecutions of Jews in Spain and Portugal. And 1492, which actually represents the expulsion of the Jews from the Iberian, Iberian Peninsula. So these uh, lamentations, they need context. And some of them I already edited many years ago. But now the bulk of these dirges also should be go into an edition and in an edition and uh, being commented and contextualized and so forth. And this will also keep me off the street, as we say in Dutch. Thank you. It
1: sounds like an absolutely marvelous project. And I wish you only the best of luck in seeing it to completion. Thank you for all the sacrifice you are investing in that project, your upcoming current project as well as all the sacrifice you invested in this one. It's a tremendous gift to humanity.
0: Thank you. I need your good wishes, and I will go on as long as I live.
1: Thank you. I'm tremendously thankful. You're welcome. To our listeners, I am your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies channel on the New Books Network podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Vote van Beckum. He is Emeritus Professor of Middle Eastern Studies at Groningen University in the Netherlands. We have been discussing his new book, The Religious Poetry of El Azar Ben Yaakov Habavli, from Baghdad in the 13th Century, published in Leiden by Brill Publishers, 2023. Thank you.